All right, if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome. Uh, I'm the senior pastor, Roger Sadsad. Sadsad, that is my last name, S-O-D-S-O-D. When you grow up with a last name like mine, Sadsad, you just get used to people making fun of it. Uh, I've been called Sad, double Sad, Sad squared. My uh, eighth grade history teacher thought he was clever. He was like, oh, you're Sod squared, you know. Um, grass, grass, dirt, dirt, <clears throat> soap sud. Uh, I, was, I was always a heavy kid, um, so one kid called me Fatty Patty. So I titled my message this morning, Mr. So-and-so. Because right away in today's scripture, we meet a guy whose name we never learn. Uh, a man Boaz refers to in the Hebrew as Peloni Almoni, which literally means like so-and-so. So a man who, in an attempt to protect his name, actually loses his name from the record of scripture. We'll get to that in a minute, but uh, let me bring us up to speed. So last two weeks, Amanda and Amber, I thought, did an excellent job. Yeah. Uh, They covered the end of chapter two and all of chapter three. So last week we we learned of Ruth and Boaz's encounter out in the field on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Um, Essentially, Ruth had just proposed to Boaz uh, and it was accepted. Ruth asked Boaz to, uh, in Ruth 3.9, to spread the, cover of your, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. And then his response was, now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. So Boaz essentially seals his promise by sending Ruth home with groceries. Well, it was barley, Um, But the point is that he's promising to take care of her. Now in chapter 4 we see Boaz going to the town gate and taking a seat. Why the town gate? Well back in that time the town gate served as sort of like a combination of a town hall and the courthouse. Um, This is where trade and, and business would take place. Uh, It's where the elders of the city would often sit. Uh, It's a place where community judgment would would sometimes take place. So listen to to, uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town must stone him to death. In this way, you will purge this evil from among you and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. So we're not talking about a father who is condemning his son to death because of his rebelliousness, but 
But Boaz goes down to the town gate for a different reason. Um, it says he goes to the town gate and he takes a seat. And then it says, just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. I like how the King James Version says it. Um, and behold, the kinsmen of whom Boaz spake came by. I like to break out the King James every once in a while. It's, uh, it's not great for, like, if you're a new Christian trying to understand the Bible, but, man, it's beautiful poetry, right? Especially at Christmas. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and they were sore afraid. Isn't that beautiful? It's like, what is sore afraid? But anyway, I digress. Um, so how is it that it just so happened um, that this particular family member walked by at that exact moment? Right? Coincidence or God's providence? Not only that, but Boaz is able to stop 10 leaders of the town uh, to, and to sit down with him. It says, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Now the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, King James Version, and several other translations uh, here use the word elders instead of leaders. So clearly we see two things. Uh, first, Boaz must have been somewhat influential if he could immediately call a gathering of 10 elders. And second, the fact that all the right people were there right at the same time points to God's providence, how God's always working behind the scenes. So here's another interesting observation. Um, why didn't Boaz just like forget all of this and go by the land and marry Ruth? Um, why did he even bother to try to find the family redeemer and the elders? The answer is that Boaz is a man of integrity. Um, in the ESV translation, it says Boaz was a worthy man. The notes in the NASB translation say that Boaz was a mighty, valiant man. Naomi recognized his character uh, when she said in verse two, or I'm sorry, in chapter two, verse 20, she said, his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She also said in 3.18, the man won't rest until he has settled things today, meaning he won't waste time before doing what is right. So the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, read the following. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it, so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. So Boaz begins his discussion with this nearer family relative. Um, what we see here is transactional language, right? Naomi's selling the land, and Boaz is proposing that this guy buy it. We also notice that Boaz is being honest. He's being above board in his approach. 
right? He doesn't even hide the fact that he wants to redeem it himself, right? He is a man of integrity. So the nearer family redeemer hears Boaz's proposal and decides to redeem it. But Boaz responds like this in verse 5. He says, then Boaz tells him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. So redeeming the land comes at a cost, right? Because the previous owner um, had a wife, Ruth, and as soon as he hears this, right, the, this nearest family redeemer, as soon as he hears this, he says this in verse 6. He says, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. So why this quick change of mind? Um, so just a refresher on the practice of the family or the kinsman redeemer. Um, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And I, one of the things I loved about the Bible, you know, we tend to spiritualize it. We tend to think it's like, um, it's just whitewashed, kind of holy, you know, um, like it doesn't, we tend to think that the Bible doesn't get into the nitty gritty of life until we discover that it does. Absolutely, the word of God is holy, but it stands in the tension between the things of God and the things that, are, that we have to deal with in the day to day. And we see this in this, this scripture. So it says, if two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if a man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the town gate and say to the elders assembled there, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will then summon him and talk with him. If he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Love it. Then she must declare, this is what happens to a man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Ever afterward in Israel, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. So the nearest unmarried male relative is to marry the widow and provide her with an heir and redeem her land so that, number one, the widow is protected, both economically and socially. Number two, the land inheritance and estate of the deceased man is protect, protected. Uh, number three, so that the family has a livelihood. And then an important note uh, is the child born to the widow will be considered the son of the dead man, not the biological father, thus preserving his name. 
So the law required that when a relative stepped up to the plate, um, he would gain by taking the land, but he would have to provide for the wife and the children um, of the dead man. So this kinsman-redeemer system was designed, of course, to protect and preserve the inheritance and the family of the deceased man. So this nearer redeemer, right, when he's asked this question, um, he knew this. He knew the implications of redeeming the land and Ruth along with it. To him, it meant an investment, but not all the returns would come back to him, right? And any future children that they might have together, right? He would have to provide for them and he would have to provide for Ruth. In fact, it also might mean a dilution of his wealth um, if there are more children with her, right? Also, it's possible this Redeemer, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that this Redeemer um, already had an existing family, right? And having a new wife could cause strife in his existing family. Remember, we're still in the, area of, in the era of polygamy, um, so men did sometimes have multiple wives. Like, I can't even imagine like, what that must be like. Like one, one marriage is hard enough. Can you imagine? I don't, I don't even want to imagine. But. Like. Anyway, uh, I'm sure this guy considered this. Like all this just ran through his head in the moment. And he decided against it. Now these verses uh, teach us something about redemption that we sometimes forget. Um, redemption has a cost. We see this family redeemer, uh, he hears about the land, and without hesitation, he agrees to redeem the land. But when he hears about the need to acquire Ruth, um, he decides not to exercise his right of redemption. He wanted all the gain, but he didn't want the sacrifices. Um, he wanted the land, but not Ruth. And he certainly didn't want to eventually have to divide up his estate and give much of it away. And here's where we come back to this very interesting thing about this guy. Nowhere in this passage do we learn his name. When Boaz greets him in verse 1, the NLT translates it as, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. And the Hebrew word there that they're translating into friend is peloni almoni. Um, and it literally means so-and-so. Hey, so-and-so, that kind of thing. It's one of those words where the, the meaning of the individual words are totally unrelated to the words used together. Like, we have those in English. So, like, hodgepodge. Like, what's a hodge? I don't know. What's a podge? I don't know, but hodgepodge, right? Or heebie-jeebies. That guy gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know? Like, what's a heebie? I don't know. What's a jeebie? I don't know. But I know what having the heebie-jeebies is, right? Or hocus-pocus. That's another one. It's appropriate for this time of the year. Hocus-pocus. What's a hocus? I don't know. What's a pocus? But we know hocus-pocus. Or, or helter-skelter. That's another one. So it's like Boaz is calling him so-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so. 
Um, so we never learn the name of this near relative, this family redeemer, which is ironic. Um, the man who wanted to preserve his name and his inheritance um, was never remembered in the end. His name was never included in this amazing story of God's providence. So here on out, uh, as I talk about this guy, I'm going to call him Poloni Almoni, okay? And I want to compare him to Boaz and to Jesus, all right? So first, as I said, Poloni Almoni is nameless, right? All throughout the Bible, um, we see that names are pretty important, right? But Poloni Almoni is nameless, Boaz, on the other hand, is named. Um, his name means strength. Um, and he is worthy and he is righteous. Right? And then, of course, there is Jesus. Jesus has the name above all names. Right? Philippians 2.9. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Okay? Second, Poloni Almoni, one could argue, was negligent in his responsibilities. He was the closer family member. I mean, it was likely, it's likely that he knew of Elimelech's passing, um, but he hadn't done anything to reach out to Naomi, do anything to try to protect her. Boaz, on the other hand, was honorable. Um, he's faithful because he goes above and beyond to try to protect and to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And then, of course, there is Jesus. So Jesus, as the Bible tells us, uh, is the good shepherd, right? And in John 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Third, Poloni Almoni, uh, one could argue, is pretty selfish. Um, he'll take the land, but once he realizes that the inheritance would also belong to Ruth uh, and any future offspring, uh, then he essentially turns his back on his family. Boaz, on the other hand, is noble. He's selfless. He sacrifices uh, in order to honor his family and by extension, honors Ruth. And then Jesus. Jesus was completely selfless. He was humble and he loved others sacrificially. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 say this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And so Boaz stands in stark contrast to this nameless Poloni Almoni, um, and he stands as a foreshadowing of the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. Okay, verses seven and eight in our scripture say this. 
Now in those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. So this custom of removing a sandal and handing it to the other party um, had its origins in the scripture I already read to you from Deuteronomy 25. I want to reread the end of it, though, just to refresh your memory about the sandal. So it says, But if the man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the town gate and say to the elders assembled there, My husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will then summon him and talk with him. If he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Maybe I just like reading that scripture again. That's funny. But then she must declare, this is what happens to a man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Ever afterward in Israel, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. So even though this is a different context, um, it does point to family redemption, and it can be applied to this interaction between Boaz and the Poloni Almoni. Um, we see here that this is an official transaction uh, confirmed by the taking off of the sandal. So this, like why a sandal? Um, so the sandal removing custom has to do with like walking on your property, right? And now in a public setting, um, you remove the sandal as if to say, this land no longer belongs to me. Kind of makes sense. So the sandal served as, as a receipt, kind of like a, a physical representation of a legal transaction. Um, and it was done in the presence of several witnesses. So when we make legal transactions, right, we don't exchange sandals, at least I haven't, maybe you have. Um, I mean, what would you do with my size 13 5E sandal, right? You wouldn't do anything with it, right? Um, but we do legal transactions typically um, through legal contracts, right? And sometimes we have to get them notarized, sometimes there's a signature seal, that kind of stuff. But Christianity actually is full of all kinds of significant signs and symbols that mark a transaction, if we think about it. So communion, we're going to do communion later. Communion has the body broken and the blood poured out for us as we eat and drink it. Water baptism is a sign of full immersion, right? As we show our union with Christ in death and resurrection Death and resurrection as we go into the water and we come out of the water. And when we get married, right, we exchange rings, uh, which symbolizes the formation of a marriage covenant in the presence of witnesses. So like that, we see the exchange of a sandal as a receipt and the sign of an agreement between two parties. All right, verses 9 and 10 say the following. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. 
And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malan, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. So Boaz publicly declares his intention for redemption in two key parts. Um, he talks about the land when he says all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. And then he talks about Ruth. So he redeems the land in the name of the family of those three men. And then he declares his intention to marry Ruth. And he describes her, it's interesting, he describes her as the Moabite widow of Malon. Boaz was very clear uh, that he wanted to bring this foreigner into the community through marriage. He didn't see Ruth as a burden. He didn't see her as a downside to the, to the redemption of the land. Right? We also see in the second half of verse 10 that Boaz isn't afraid to take up the responsibility of carrying on the name of her deceased husband. This is what he says. He says, this way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. So Boaz was willing to take up the cost so that their family name wouldn't be cut off and their social standing would be preserved. Um, sometimes people read this story and they read things into it that aren't there. Right? Boaz didn't get married out of a desire for companionship because he was lonely. Um, he didn't get married, I've heard this one before too, he didn't get married because he was like this old wealthy dude who got lucky when this young woman showed up next to him on the threshing floor. Um, did he find her attractive? Maybe, probably. Did he fall in love with her? Maybe, probably. The important thing to know is that those were secondary. Those were not primary. Right? This marriage was a demonstration of chesed love and really points beyond the two of them, points beyond Boaz and Ruth. It ultimately points to Jesus. Right? In the moment, though, we see, we see it pointing to the death of Elimelech and the resurrection of this family through Boaz's demonstration of chesed love. Right? But we know that it also points to Jesus' demonstration of chesed love towards us on the cross at Calvary. Verses 11 and 12, going on to the next two verses, say, Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah, there it is, and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So after the legal uh, redemption ceremony, the town's elders and people gather together to show their support 
of uh, the relationship and the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And they pray this prayer of blessing over this couple. I want to point out three observations about this. First, without hesitation, they are accepting this outsider as one of them. Right? We are seeing grace and love extended. Warm hospitality, even to a person from Moab who is their perceived enemy. Second, the people have faith for a miracle. Right? If you remember from chapter 1, um, Ruth was apparently barren after 10 years of not having a child. And yet the people pray that Boaz and Ruth's children would be abundant like Rachel and Leah. And if you remember, Leah had six sons, Rachel had two, and then of course Bilhah had two, and Zilpah had two. So that's 12 total. And those 12 would go on to create the 12 tribes of Israel. Third, that prayer of blessing, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. The prayer is that Boaz would be prosperous and wealthy and have a great name in Bethlehem. Literally, it's, and it'll be up on screen, may a name be called slash given, or may people call you a name. It's like the literal opposite of Peloni Almoni. And this is prophetic in that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. All right, the prophecy is in Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The last part of this blessing prayer I find the most interesting. Um, they say this. They say, And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman, who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. If you remember, Perez was born as a result of a deceptive and semi-incestuous relationship between Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. You can go back and read that story in Genesis 38 if you want. The point of the blessing, of course, is increased offspring. It's interesting, though. Um, there's a similarity between the story of Tamar and Judah, right, where there's both deception and incest, and how the Moabites, right, Ruth's people, came into existence. Another story of deception and incest. You can read that one in Genesis 19. So the origins of Ruth's people began in shame and sin. And likewise, Perez's Paris, origins began in shame and sin. And yet these people of God are using it as a prayer of blessing to mark a new life, a new beginning, with the fruit of many descendants. Fascinating. 
Perhaps there's even a prophetic hint here that's pointing to the coming of Jesus himself. Jesus, who was absolutely righteous and holy, um, the high priest, the spotless lamb, and yet is a friend of sinners. Right? The one who said this in Luke 5, 31 and 32, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. So once again, the story of Ruth and Naomi is a story of God's grace. We see in this story how God turns sorrow into joy, how he brings good news to the poor. Um, how he comforts the brokenhearted and how he gives a crown of beauty for ashes. When Jesus was in the synagogue in in Nazareth, he read from the scroll of Isaiah um, indicating that he was the one to whom the scriptures were referring. I want to close with an excerpt from that passage because this story of, of Ruth and Naomi And Boaz points to the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against her enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. And then down to verse 7, instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. God does this because of his chesed love for us. Um, But also so that we can demonstrate that chesed love to others so that we would be more like Boaz and not so much like Mr. So-and-so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, yours is the name above all names. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, and blessing. Lord, you indeed turn our shame into honor. You break the chains that bind us, and you give us a crown of beauty for ashes. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, we know that this is not a transactional thing. It's not a guilt thing. We're not supposed to think 
Jesus did all this for me. I need to do a better job at being more like him. Then we look at the story of Ruth and Boaz and we think, I just need to be more like them. And we see yet again how we don't measure up. Lord, you know that it's about walking in our identity as your beloved child, knowing and experiencing the love of the Father, being filled up with that love so that we are empowered to love one another. Lord, I pray against that sense of inadequacy and guilt and trying to earn your love. Did I do enough today? Did I disappoint my Father in heaven? Am I more like Mr. So-and-so or am I looking more like Boaz? Am I exhausted trying to please God? Or can I trust that he's already transformed me from a sinner to a saint as my primary identity? Can I trust that even though there are areas God's working on in my life, I know that who I am has already been settled by God? Can I finally rest knowing that I'm fully loved and accepted right where I'm at? Because God, until we get to that point, until we can receive and experience your love, we can't give it. What we give is just works of righteousness. We can't give what we don't have. Lord, we cry out to you. Help us to know and experience your love so that we can extend that love to others. God, break the power of guilt. Break the power of shame. Break the power of unworthiness, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.